This editorially independent podcast is supported by Visit Flanders. This podcast features music and audio used according to the fair use principle. So this is the area in 1917. This is the village of Passchendaele. That's, this that's, is that's yeah, this Passchendaele, and this is the way. And that kind of thing, they have to attack. It's just ruins. so you can imagine the German lines. They saw them coming for miles around, but we will see later it's, on. It's just nothing, though. There's nothing anymore. Completely destructed. So this is October 1970. Yes, October 1970. It's just a ruin on fields. Yes, if you fired 4,200,000 grenades in four days, day and night, this is the result, huh? Jesus Christ. I'm Brendan Kearney. You're listening to the Belgian Smart Podcast. Shit. This is a Scottish soldier from the Black Watch, which is uh, the kilt. They put over some khaki uh, kilt above it because otherwise you could see the colors too good. They found uh, letters of um, German soldiers who, who came out deep in the, the border uh, in, because Poland didn't exist at that time. Poland was Germany, who came out that region. They wrote it at home that it was not, uh, I say that, not funny to fight the war in Flanders because they have to fight against women. Because they saw the Scottish guys coming over. At the first time they saw it. They looked and they saw, they thought it was women who came to attack them, okay? And this is a French soldier, a poilu. As you see, red um, still, uh, after a few months, they stepped over to blue. The French are more worried about what they look like than, yes. than camouflage. Yes, it's yes. Very, very French. Yes, when they stepped after the numbers of deaths, they stepped over real, real quickly. Eric de Bray is a guide for Castel Brouwerie van Onsbroek, a large family brewery in Isegem who produces a range of beers whose branding references the Battle of Bassendale. Bassendale Blonde. That's 4.8% ABV. Passantala Porter, that's 5.7% ABV. And Passantala Ginger White, that's 4.5% ABV. He's leading me down into the reconstructed First World War dugout at the Memorial Museum in the village of Zonnebeke. And he's telling me stories that he knows will capture my imagination. This is the gas. Uh, the first, we, we will uh, visit the point where the Germans used just outside Langemark, used for the first time uh, their gases. It was chlor gas. Um, it was not, um, and they called it Ypres because they used it the first time in the area of Ypres. Okay? So this is the diggers because there was too much artillery. The British has to go underground. We will see a, a, a dugout uh, with their own eyes here. And what did they do? They closed all the mines in England, Ireland, Wales, Scotland, and brought those mine workers over here to build those kind of things. Okay, to get, this is the mine, um, uh, an explosion of a mine in Mason. 
So they have tunneled under the German lines, put in uh, TNT in it and explode. Like the mine, in the, the mine um, battle in Mason, uh, they let explode nine onto 12 mines and they could hear it until, they could hear it in London. Wow. This is the flamethrower. Also, the Germans has a new weapon. Um, is this a training? Or yes, no, this is real. Combat. This is combat, yeah. This is combat, as you see, the flamethrower here on their back. This is this one, very dangerous. And these are the tanks. There were uh, seven men inside that thing. To be get crazy inside of it. This is a British tank, okay? In the Battle of Pilgrim, 1960. And, and the gas that was used, was that, uh, was that just like, you, you threw something that exploded? No, they, they, like here, as you can see here, those things with... Uh, it's like a shell. Yeah, it's like the gas was inside, and they waited on, like here. So, this is the gas was inside here, and they waited till the wind was good, and the wind was blowing in direction of the British Army. And then they open it, and then the gas, chlorogas, as you can see, goes as high as this, and goes everywhere in, and not a lot higher than this. And it's, so the, yes, the, the wind, blow, yes, goes into the trenches, and the wind blows it direction of the, of the British force. The Canadians, you will see that monument where they touched, uh, the, the Canadians took the first attack with, with gas, and they lost 8,000 soldiers. So they, they were surprised. They just got into your lungs and then... And your eyes, uh, you can see anymore. In the beginning, there were no hazmasks. There was only after a few time. And as you can see here, they were using chlorogas. And one of the, the grenadiers, Belgium grenadiers, have a fantastic idea. What he did was took in, uh, his, um, I call that, his uh, fouloir, pee on it, pee on it, because in urine, is, uh, protects you against chlor. And they put on uh, glasses to drive it uh, with the motorcycles. And this is the first hazmask. So, okay. uh, uh, like a handkerchief? Yeah. yeah. With piss on it? Yeah, the piss on it. And because in urine, in urine uh, have uh, something in your urine, destructs the, the chlor. Yes, that was the first. And then they put in the gases in different uh, artillery shells, okay? So this is all. The, the first hazmask. You can see some of the horses because the horses has to, to have also a has mask. Wow. This is one of the, the, the most people don't know. If you knew Australians brought, the Anzac brought from Australia, horses, 85,000 horses. And how many get back to Australia? Not even 10 or, or 20, you know. Most of the horses died over here. The Battle of Passendala was a World War I military operation which took place between July and November of 1917 during which the Allied forces attempted to take control of the strategically important ridges to the south and east of the city of Ypres, which were being held by the Germans at the time. Now, During the months of that battle, hundreds of thousands of soldiers from across the world lived and fought on open fields of porridge-like mud around the village of Zonabika outside Ypres. The Battle of Passendala has become an international symbol of the futility of war. 
In 100 days, almost 600,000 soldiers were killed for a gain by the Allies of only 8 kilometres of ground. One thing you read about Battle of Pasnala is the numbers who died. So obviously from the different armies you had different numbers, the British, the Belgians, the French, yes. the, the Anzac. Do you know what you mean? Uh, no, like the, the numbers of deaths. So for oh the, yeah, the I, men. I, I read that yeah. there were 600,000 600, deaths yeah. in total. In total. Um, in that battle. Yeah, approximately, yeah. Um, I mean, how does that compare in, in deaths to other battles and other wars? Um, that's why they, they call it the, the, the Great War. Uh, it's in a small area, it's enormous, that kind of losses. In the Second World War, it was all real quicker and on a much bigger area. But here, in that small area, a lot of boys died. 600,000 is unbelievable to see. You will see it later on. This is a, a dugout uh, for a platoon, which means a platoon uh, of 35, something in between 35 and 40 soldiers. They close this one. So this is made. Uh, as it was at that time, but what you cannot uh, imagine is um, uh, crying of the wounded guys, uh, the, um, the smell over the deaths. Uh, everything was going like in a ship because artillery bombardments above made this moving like a ship. And this is the way, this one we cannot enter by the corona, but in here, this is how they sleep. With equipment inside here, and. Each time two persons. Oh my God. And there were always, and there were, yeah, and there were always, uh, if the platoon was 40 men, there were always, I say, in between 10 or 15 beds. Why? Because one third of the boys have a duty under the ground to clean up guns and everything. Some of them sleeps, and the others were outside. Yeah. So the others from outside. Never needed all the beds. Yeah, the guys from outside came inside. And those guys out of bed, the guys who were duty into the beds, you know what I mean, eh? This is the guys who were on service, have to pump by hand. Each two hours of each hour, they have to pump to get the water out of the dugout. And is that constant? So that, yeah, yeah. So, so if you stop doing that, the whole place will be underwater? Yeah, yeah. Too much water came in, and they have to, to pump the water out. So that's just, okay. someone has to just keep doing that all the time? Yes, a yes, a rotating rotation system. So we even go deeper. This is the toilets, as you can see. They didn't have always the time to bring the shit 
above. They put on some, um, uh, I say that, some uh, white material on it, caulk. We call that in English. Calcium. Yeah, so a kind of thing yeah. to put it on. Uh, they were waiting the time on to bring the shit above. So, so they're just I can tell you. Shitting on shit. Yeah. Stinks. Yes. Stinks. So the boys for the section who went outside. This is the way out to the trenches outside. At that moment on, when the section was outside, the doctor came over here with his nurses, or the guys, uh, not, not nurses in, 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 the, uh, in the front line, the, how you say that, the guys who are responsible. Uh, Medic? No, medics, yeah, the medics was, were waiting here. The boys came from above, the wounded guys. They placed it over here to have their inspection. When there were much wounded guys, they could put them. Another, yeah. The stretcher berries on here, and the boys who didn't, who wasn't wounded, who came from above, clear, as quick as possible that direction, to uh, do everything in the same uh, yeah, shelter, to do everything, everything off, yeah. yes, everything off, and receive some food, and not to see the wounded guys, because as That's soon as possible for for the head, for the mind, away, food, and going to rest, and then here the doctor decides here. Uh, what was happening with the wound? You, he's badly wounded. We have to have to the operation quarter. This is a light wound. We can do it over here and all that kind of things. Here he took his decisions. Okay. And like, were most of the injuries uh, gunshot wounds? No, or, artillery. Artillery. Yeah, so artillery. Most of them. So that's Ar that yeah, only in the big offensives. There were uh, machine gun. Uh, wounded guys from machine guns and grenades, but a lot of time it was from grenades uh, fired by guns. So by that's, gun that's ex explosions and, and yes, and, uh, all kinds of things. But the doctors were uh, advancing really, really quickly. Uh, they only uh, have an amputation where it was strictly necessary. They tried to to make the boys arrange the boys, eh? as we're doing now also. Eh? So this is all kind of new weapons from the different armies. As you can see here, this is what they fought under the ground with each other. Oh all God. kind of things. With so that's, hands. A, that's a club with yes. uh, metal? Yeah, yeah, like in medieval time. So they, they would take this? Yeah, yeah, they took their weapons under the ground because you cannot fire a, a, a gun uh, when you are 18, 20 meters under the ground because everything could collapse. So they're using hand weapons. So they're clubbing people. Yeah, yeah, they're killing each other with this. Jesus. In taking me around the museum, Eric speaks so knowledgeably about the details of war. You know, the, the structure of regiments, the military strategy, the various equipment used, that it soon becomes clear that he himself has served in the army. I learned that Eric is retired special forces having spent most of his career in the 1st Parachute Battalion, an elite fighting force in the Belgian land component, often described as the Belgian para-commandos. But he seems reluctant to discuss the details of his own service. On behalf of the brewery that produces the Bossendala beers, 
Eric has agreed to take me around the World War I sites around Zonabika so I can understand the context of their branding. But each time I bring up his own time with the army, he kind of beckons me to move on to the next part of the museum or the next village on the route or to the next cemetery on the tour. The question that's in the back of my mind is whether the Passendala beers are an act of remembrance by a brewery located only a few kilometres from where the tragedy of this battle unfolded, or a cynical attempt by an ambitious business enterprise to commercially exploit the heightened interest in World War I since the centenary commemorations of 2014-2018. I'm hoping that Eric Dupre can help explain to me why Castel Brauerei van Honsebroek has decided to brand these beers using one of the most tragic events to have taken place on Belgian soil. Are you completely numb to the, the the kind of the tragedy of it? Because you know, this is something you talk about all the time. People are interested and amazed yeah. and they feel bad. Are you numb to the, yeah. the pain? Yeah, I'm still uh, I'm still uh, because uh, I'm, I'm ca- I can come emotionally from talking about that kind of things. My background, you know, I lost also friends in foreign countries, and it makes you looking another way to that situations. Well, that said, I, I, I was thinking, you know, when you talked about the moment where they bring people in and they put them on the beds that yes. need to be assessed by the medics, yes. and the other men are brought in to get rid of their armor and to have some yeah. food yeah. because they don't want to look at their yes. friend who's suffering yes. and what that might do to their mind. And I was thinking, you know, like, have you ever been in that situation? Because doing this will bring back surely some memories. Yeah, right? yeah, bring back memories. But as an NCO, I was an NCO at that time. When you um, have wounded guys from your sections, um, you have bring back the, the, the hospice to uh, to do the thing. And the, the best you can do is uh, say to the boys, stay away from it because seeing wounded friends is not good for the mind. So keep your mind focused. On, on, focused on the thing we're doing and we will see it when we are back behind the lines then we can have a discussion. But now you have to focus yourself on the mission. Yeah. Okay, That's the most important thing to do. And when you take people around in this kind of environment yes. and you talk about what happened, do you see people get emotional? Well? Yes, a lot of them. Uh, depends a little bit on the group. More, most of, I don't see much people who are not, um, because when I'm doing a tour, I'm ending with the last post, starting whole day, and have a few beers also. Eh? But I can see when I have a whole day visit the things with me, at the end, at eight o'clock at the Manning Gate in the last post, I see even guys, um, their tears, let their tears go because they have a day in motion and it comes out and they're looking at the last post and another dimension, then you should go on your own just for the last post, you know. And then you see some emotion. You see more, also in here when you have, tell some things, mostly, most of the time, uh, when from here I go to the battlefield areas on the, on the war cemeteries, that's, that's important. There they have their emotions, okay. It's a lot to take in. And, you know, do you ever take Germans around? Yes, because before, um, that's just, took now uh, two generations from here, the Germans came, but in small groups uh, and on their own, and visit the, the, the war cemeteries on their own, because you have lost the war. But now the generation, now it's the third generation, fourth generation, 
after the First World War, those guys say, I'm coming to Flanders Fields, I want to see where my granduncle or my is buried. And they're, all, um, they're doing really, uh, if you have Germans, Germans on the, um, on the war cemeteries, then they sing a song uh, or they bring flowers. They're really emotional, yeah, yeah. Because a uh, German song was still is, uh, played when German soldiers died, even now, is Ich hatte ein Kamerad, I will he hear it on, the, on the, the war cemetery in Lamarck. And they always sing the same. They not bring music into the world. The difference is when you um, have time called the 11th of November, bagpipes, etc. You have Wonder War and German War Cemetery. I say that they are uh, um, singing a song without music. It's another kind of looking at things, you know. The song Eric mentions here, the one song that the Germans always sing at the German graves in Belgium, is a traditional German lament. Ich I once had a comrade. The words come from a poem written in 1809, and it was set to music in 1825. It's got nothing to do with Nazism, it predates both world wars. It's basically a song about losing your friend. I once had a comrade. You will find no better. The drum called us to battle. He walked by my side. In the same pace.
part 2 van onze brug. Eric takes me to Brouwerij van Onzebrug, who produced the Passendale beers. It's an impressive fortress-like structure that looks more like a Flemish prison than a stately chateau. It's a period earlier this year between the spring and winter national COVID-19 lockdowns in Belgium, so my body temperature is recorded automatically by a thermal imaging camera in the reception, and I'm required to sign in, wear a mask, disinfect my hands before being allowed through the security entrance. As I clamber with my camera and sound gear, Eric offers to carry my audio recorder so we can move more efficiently, leading the way in his off-white t-shirt and dark green knee-length shorts, keychains dangling at his side for quick deployment as needed. Now, Eric Dupre started working here after retiring from the army because his, of his close friendship with owner Xavier van Honsebroek. During the visit, he shows me around all three stories of the brewery including the production facility, visitor center, restaurant, event venue and shop, all of which are surrounded by this kind of central courtyard. He guides me as a soldier would, efficient and purposeful in his movements. He helps me tidy up my camera and audio gear after interviews. I have never seen my microphone cables rolled up so quickly, so tightly and so perfectly. So Eric shows me the large system in which Van Hunsebroek's ales are brewed. Their Gastel range of Abbey-style ales, Blonde, Rouge, Dunker, Triple and Hoppy. Their 8.5% ABV Belgian Golden Strong Ale Filou. And their 9% ABV Belgian Strong Blonde Ale Brigant. I see the large fooders where their mixed fermentation range of Bacchus O Brown beers are matured in oak. And I'm brought to the top floor where their San Louis range of Lambic beers are inoculated for spontaneous fermentation in a large shallow cool ship bath. Several old wooden sailing beams from the previous brewery in Ingelmunster have been added to the roof of this inoculation attic in a supposed attempt to kind of recreate the microbiological environment of the previous space, which promotes the, the favorable spontaneous fermentation of Lambic. Now, Van Hansebroek delivered on their own brief for the Pastanala beers. They're technically flawless and, you know, they exhibit Belgian balance in their construction. They're well suited to like war tourists who want to try something different or maybe locals around Zonabeke seeking a, a meaningful alternative to their usual beers. From, from my experience and perhaps from yours, they might be considered a little pedestrian, you know, by the hardened beer enthusiast. The blonde perhaps a little bit too spicy and too sweet in the finish. The porter maybe not full or chocolatey enough. The ginger white too subtle in its ginger additions. You know, you get the sense that each could be deployed usefully by Van Onsebroek as a base recipe for third-party contracted beers. As seems to be the case actually in the uh, Michelle's Pub and Brasserie, the bar and restaurant inside the Beer Castel, managed by Xavier Van Onsebroek's daughter, which serves its own Michelle's Blonde wit and porter. And while the Passendala range makes up only a small part of Van Hunsebroek's production, it fills an important gap in their portfolio when it comes to beer style and brand. So, and this is important, 
the description of the Passendala beers on the brewery website it includes assertions that quote with every sip we reflect on the horror of the great war close quote on the label of the beer a red poppy at its center there's a statement that it's quote the great beer end quote together with a call to action in an italicized text quote when opening a bottle of Passendala Please hold a minute's silence to commemorate those who fell on the battlefield. End quote. Now, Van Honsebroek is aware of the potential insensitivity of their branding, particularly in geographical markets with closer experiences of the First World War. You know, the British, for example, lost 240,000 soldiers in just 100 days at the Battle of Passendala. And, you know, this is acknowledged by their commercial directors. Um, Kasteelbrouwerij van Honsebroek is um, a 100% Belgium family owned uh, brewery. It's the fifth generation uh, with Xavier van Honsebroek uh, as the owner of the brewery. We are um, well known for the specialty beers Kasteel, uh, Filou, St. Louis, the fruit and uh, Lambics, uh, Passchendaele and uh, some other Belgium smaller brands like the Brigant um, is, uh, is our portfolio. This is Frederic Boulet, the head of sales and marketing at uh, Brouwerie van Honsebroek. And, you know, obviously van, Hon- <coughs> van Honsebroek is the name of the family that, that has been involved with the brewery for five generations. Castel, what's the, what's the connection to castle? Castel is the Flemish word for uh, castle um, and... Um, we started in Ingelmünster. It's a small uh, city next to Isegem. It's only one mile away from here. Um, and in the end of the 80s, um, the father of Xavier van Honsebroek, Luc van Honsebroek, he, uh, he owned the brewery and it was situated next to the castle of Ingelmünster. Uh, in the late 80s he bought the castle and so that was uh, immediately the reason to uh, launch a new brand, Castel so the Flemish word for castle uh, to launch the brand Castel because we were owner of the of the castle of Ingelmünster next to the old uh, brewery So so that was uh, kind of the start of a Castel brand of beers which then later got very connected to the identity of the brewery mm-hmm, Indeed I mean, we're, we're in a, a pretty impressive building right now. You have, you know, function rooms for weddings, you have restaurants, you have shops, you have, you know, business suites for conferences. Uh, there's the whole production site, which includes not just uh, hot side and cold side, but food rooms and everything. Um, you know, when did you come to this uh, site? And, you know, what was that transition like from, from an, a brewery that was a bit older, dating back to the, the 80s? Mm-hmm. It was uh, the, a decision that needed to be taken uh, by uh, Xavier van Honsebroek. Uh, we were situated in Ingelmünster and there we had a full capacity. So we reached our uh, full capacity and we had to make two choices or we stayed uh, at that level uh, or we would invest in a new brewery and on the location in Ingelmünster we didn't have the place um, 
to grow. So uh, Xavier van Onsenbroek decided to uh, buy and build a completely new brewery, like you have seen it uh, in, in the days before, I think, uh, with Eric, our guide. Um, so we decided to build a, a brand new brewery um, with all accommodations for beer tourism, uh, not only for professional and technical uh, reasons, but we installed the the beer castel. Uh, it's the castle of the beers, not only for brewing beers, but also for the beer experience uh, to uh, enjoy the tourists for a full day uh, experience. And you know um, that you know an ambitious project like this is obviously you know making a decision to safeguard the future of the family brewery and really invest in you know long term future can you tell me a little bit about the, the the kind of the level of investment and the capacity increase that you're able to yeah. go to from you know the previous brewery um, the total investment was uh, 55 million uh, euros uh, and now we have a brewery that is able to double the capacity if we make, um, if you compare it with the previous uh, brand and plant. Before uh, Van Onsenbroek, I was a sales manager in um, Belgium for uh, AB Indef, so the other big brother. So based in Leuven, or did you were you working from West Flanders? Um, I had my base in Leuven, but uh, we had also uh, local plants uh, in in Flanders and in Walloon uh, part. So you could kind of see the inside of a kind of a, a bigger commercial operation in the beer industry, which I think is helpful for you know a brewery like Van Hansebroek who's trying to look to export and and be very ambitious. What would you say are the biggest differences? between working in a, in a business like InBev compared to working in a family, Belgian family brewery? InBev is, uh, of course, it's, uh, it's the number one uh, brewer of the world. Um, they are um, a lager brewer. Uh, most of the volumes are lagers. So it's a totally different market if we compare it with the Van Hansenburg brewery because we don't do lagers, we only do specialty beers. Um, but we like um, the way of working of ABNDEF because they, uh, as they are the number one brewer in the world, they, um, they make Belgian beers popular. Um, so we say thank you to ABNDEF to, to make the world getting known the Belgian beers. Um, so for us, it's, uh, it's good to get our beer sold in, uh, in export also. Yeah, I mean, when I, I talk to a lot of Belgian family brewers and people that work in those breweries and a lot of them sort of say the same thing, you know, um, you've got the guys from Halvaman and even a smaller brewery like Verhaga uh, who were involved in the Belgian beer cafe project in the 90s. InBev has done a lot of things which certainly help family brewers. I'm not sure all breweries in Belgium would share that view. Um, and in terms of like the, the you know, you say that you know Embev are a lager brewery and Van Hansebroek are a specialty beer brewery. Is there any difference in like the the heart in terms of decision making based on sort of a family heritage and what you want to do, whereas maybe Embev maybe make decisions purely based on like the commercial ambition? Or did you not did you not see that? Yes. Um, but the difference is we are um, family owned, so we have a very 
short, um, uh, how do you call it, org chart. Um, so the organization chart is very close to each other. If we have a question or if you have an ID, um, we can talk about it and discuss about it um, immediately with, with the owner of the, of the company. Um, if ABNBF needs to uh, make a decision, it takes longer. Uh, investments are probably bigger also. But um, as, a, as a Belgium family brewer, we are, uh, we are very flexible. Um, also on uh, on technical um, level, we can uh, brew uh, small batches. Uh, we can, with our proper canning line, we can make uh, personalized personalized um, packages, uh, and it can go very fast. If today we have an ID, we can implement it tomorrow if uh, we want. Um, hello, hi, good morning. How are you? Uh, thanks. What's your, what's your name? Mark. Uh, what's your surname? Schrauen. S-C-H-R-A-U-W-E-N. Schrauen. Yeah, Schrauen. Um, uh, what's your role here at the brewery, Mark? Uh, I'm here for 12 years now. And what, what's your, uh, your job, your role? I'm sales manager. So that is uh, dealing with export? Also, yes. You know, one of the one of the things I'm asking everybody involved with you know war and beer is the fact that you know there was so much suffering, and here we have a commercial product which we're selling to, you know, to, to try and make money for a business. You know, and I'm just trying to also explore like the tension that there exists between the kind of the history and the culture and the remembrance and the kind of commercial gain. Now, obviously, there's a part of the proceeds which are going to the the the, the Stad uh, Passendala Zonabika to help with events. Um, but uh, was that ever a consideration, you know, in sales, or did you ever have anybody uh, no, there asking is, any? No, very. I, I think your remark is right that there is uh, a kind of tension, a kind of let's say conflict between uh, the commercial stuff and let's say the remembrance, the historical stuff. So people in some countries, and one country is more delicate than another, to uh, or more, let's say, sensible, sensitive uh, to that problem than another one. Uh, that they they don't want you to make uh, money, uh, let's say, on the back of those of the people that were killed. So it can be very sensitive. So that's why we also. And that, which is which is the truth, that in fact the the entire project was in collaboration with the community of Sonnebeke, and there was a kind of fee or support paid to the community on each bottle of Passchendaele that was uh, sold. Does it make does it make it more difficult or easier to sell that beer, for example, in the UK, where you know it, there is a very strong connection to that that story. The UK is very difficult. So, and do you think that's because of their natural cynicism to to, to this topic? Yeah. That it's so close to them that they don't want to. They don't want to to get involved, let's say, with business and uh, and history. We get demand from the UK, from individual uh, persons. But uh, in general, they're uh, a little bit uh, no. They're against it. But I, you know, are, are you working with like a UK importer for you know your other brands? Yeah, of course. And is it is the, the importer that you kind of have a good working relationship 
that had sort of also said to you, uh, you know, I don't know if... No, it's not the importer. The importer will do it, but it's the, let's say, the, the customers in general, the, the pubs. So that is like something that people have actually said, the pubs have said, or is that coming through an importer? Uh, no, 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 it's coming through, through pubs, through, through pub change, to retail change, that uh, they will not, uh, let's say, they will not be involved in, 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 in that kind of story because they're afraid to, to mix up the, let's say, the, the selling of such a product with, uh, with, this, yeah, with still the, the wounds that haven't healed or the remembrance of the people that, that were killed. Although it is clearly a project together, again, with the, the foundation of, of Sonderbaker Passion Nail. But it is very, especially in the UK, it's very, still very emotional. Yeah, you're, you're aware of the sensitivity of yeah, it? Yeah, it's very sensitive. Is that not a concern you might have for, for the States, for example, if you try to move Passion more mm, into the States? Not really, not really. Why, why is that? It's, for them, it's further away. The, and you, you know, there, there were not so many Americans in Belgium, it were rather English or Canadian or New Zealand or... Yeah. And I mean, the, the, the profile of the blonde is obviously, you know, fairly low ABV, especially for Belgium, mm -hmm. very drinkable. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you can put it beside an a international lager and, you know, it, it'll serve the same function, so it can serve for that customer. Um, I mean, in, in your portfolio as a whole, do you have anything similar? Because, you know, Filu is a strong Belgian golden ale. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you have the Abbey ranges of Castel. You have a, the, the, even the blonde Castel is kind of a stronger, yeah. more fermentation forward beer. So is there anything else similar or is that, was it created as well to kind of fill that gap? No, it, it, it was created to fill that gap. In, in fact, the challenge was to, because... And I, I have to be very careful with what I'm, I'm, I'm saying right now. Uh, but lager market, Pilsner market, it's, it's, it's all about, let's say, all about the same. And the taste is in, and again, I'm very careful in what I'm saying now. The taste is coming, becoming more and more neutral, less hopped, less, uh, more and more easy drinkable. Uh, and there will be a reason for that, for sure. The younger consumers that they, they like it, or, or in general consumers that they like it. And then the challenge was to make a beer with a full taste at a lower alcohol uh, level. In fact, so that's the way it, it started. And it took about, I think about, it was about one or two years before we came to that result. Because... Um, it's, it's easier to put more taste or to have more taste when you have more alcohol. So alcohol com contributes to, to that. And then staying at, uh, it was also uh, uh, about finding the right yeast to, to come to a, a beer from around uh, 5.6 uh, 5 uh, degrees uh, and with a full, full taste. I actually read something uh, online, I think that um, Xavier van Honsbroek had a bet with Philippe Delvaux. That was in, indeed too. So Philippe Delvaux is a, is a kind of a well-known yeah. microbiologist who assists yeah. especially yeah. a lot of family yeah. breweries yeah. here in Belgium. Mm -hmm. His father is a very famous um, yeah. scientist also, from Kaolum. Indeed, yes. So can you tell me a little bit about that 
that and sort of you know how it. Right, that's in fact what what I explained that uh, Xavier wanted the bet was that we could develop here in the brewery uh, a light beer full of taste. That in fact, uh, as I said uh, before, that in fact is is all about it. But Delvaux didn't. How could he not know that that was possible? Uh, I don't say he didn't know it was possible, uh, but most probably he was never challenged on that one. So, and uh, I, I, I was there when it came up on the table. It was during a tasting, and uh, so you're you're in a room with Xavier and yeah. Hans and, yeah, and everyone, yeah. Philippe. And let's say no one also, uh, because don't forget when you talk about uh, the the lager market. It's it's a, it's a market of very big volumes, big big volumes, low prices, and uh, most probably no other brewery ever, let's say, uh, was interested in developing uh, a beer that looked like a lager, which had more taste, but having to sell it at a much higher price because of the smaller volume, because of the, the, the cost of the raw materials, the development and everything. So, uh, in fact, it started up as a, a kind of gimmick, a kind of, of game, a kind of challenge. It was, it was not really started up to say, we will go with that beer into the lager market, because we, we, are, we are far from competitive uh, if, we, if we want to go in, in, in that kind of business. It's, it's totally, totally different. You know, and w- you know, when you're sitting around the table there with the first, you know, incarnations of yeah. what would become Passendale and Hans is there and Xavier yeah. is there and Philippe Delvaux is there. Like, uh, is that months and months of different trials or is it one or two and we got it? Like, we, we got it no, pretty it's, early. It's, 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 it can even be years. Because you, you, you create, you taste... You also have, yeah, look at... Like, for example, put me in the room, you know, mm-hmm. put me in the room. In the, in the first iterations where you're tasting and discussing mm-hmm. and you're saying, we're not quite there yet, but we will get there. Mm-hmm. What are the things that you're saying about why you're not there and where, where you can go? It's not drinkable, it's too fruity, it's too spicy. Yeah, it's, 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 and it's also one person against another. You have the technical people... And you have the, the salespeople, and, and, and you have people in between. You have experts. You have who, who wins? Non-experts. You have to know, and that's also we, we once did an exercise with uh, Philippe Delvaux and his father on just on smelling, and then you you have to 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 find out. Uh, yeah, are there any mistakes in the beer, or was the yeah, accent, it's like off flavor sens- yeah. sensitivities? Yeah, and and but you, we also did a test with, let's say, smelling aromas, not not only beers, but smelling aromas or smelling different. Uh, how do you call it in English? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, different smells. Yeah. yeah, and you see the spectrum let's say from zero to to hundred, then for example, I, I smell well between between five and 20, you will be between 15 and, and 40, 
Frederick, for example, was totally different from me, and there were things I didn't smell that he did, and, and vice versa. So that the same yeah, with taste, and and that that's also that are things that you have to take into account. You mentioned the Belgian family brewers. Is Brouwer van Hansenbroek a member of the Belgian family brewers? Not anymore. Ah, okay. We stepped out, uh, I think, uh, five years ago. What was the reason for the, the stepping out? Uh, yeah, what's in the name of family brewers? So uh, it's not all about family brewers within Belgian family brewers. That was one of the reasons. So the focus in the organization, in the association, was not an, enough on family brewers? Yeah, and it was okay. Uh, let's say there were some, yeah, some issues that uh, made us decide to, to, to step out. Can you tell me what issues? No, no we're going to do that. No, 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 no. That's, uh, there were issues and the, the, these issues have been solved. Was it an issue related to one particular other brewery who was a member? Uh, not going to give any comment on this one. Now, before I leave, I ask Frederic about Passendala again. It's not our uh, biggest brand, but uh, it was an idea um, that uh, came from uh, the, the Commonwealth um, cities. Um, it's uh, the, the West Hook. Like Ipers, uh, Poperingen, Zonnebeke, Passendale. These are very small uh, villages, half an hour away from the brewery. And um, the people asked to get a beer in remembrance of the Great War. Um, so the the 100 years ago, uh, what happened uh, in these uh, small villages? They asked if we could uh, brew a remembrance beer. Uh, so um, we started to brew Passchendaele as a as a blonde beer, but not a lager. It's a top fermented blonde beer with the ABV of a lager. So technically, it's always uh, nice to do something special. Uh, we launched it uh, for the period uh, 1418, indeed. Um, now that passed. Um, but still, the remembrance is there, uh, certainly in that specific region from the West Hook. Um, so we uh, made the Passchendaele Blonde, and since last year we also uh, had a line extension with the Passchendaele Ginger White. It's a, it's a white beer. And the Passchendaele Porter. As you know, in Ireland, the porters very well. Uh, we also have the Passchendaele Porter since uh, last year. So it's a collaboration between the brewery and these villages to uh, remember the Great War and uh, a part of the margin uh, goes also to these villages to support all uh, remembrance events. And what was the what was the reason for sort of choosing uh, you know a kind of 4.8% very drinkable top fermented beer as the kind of the beer the first beer for the Passendala brand? Um, was it something that was missing from your lineup in terms of your other beers? Was it something you felt suited the kind of branding of, of this particular product? It was um, the best ideas of both worlds because the villagers asked for that kind of beer because it is uh, easy drinking. Um, and in our portfolio, we didn't have uh, beer like this 
So if we looked in our portfolio, it was an it is an added value to have it uh, available uh, as an easy drinking uh, beer. You know, and the, and the porter obviously makes sense given the um, the kind of the porter and stout porter cultures of you know Ireland and the UK. You know, soldiers that would have been fighting at Passendala. Um The ginger white though is kind of a little bit more of an off-center choice. Uh, what was the thinking behind that product? Um, it was uh, once again also uh, a test for us because we didn't have white beers in our portfolio. So um, for us, it was a nice try to um, to brew for the first time a white beer in uh, in, in Isigam in the, in the new brewery. Um, and in summer times, it's very refreshing. So uh, we launched it last summer, and it was uh, it is it is a nice refreshing white beer. And it is not a white beer like all other white beers because of the ingredients we use, um, the spices like the like the like the ginger. It's uh, it gives an extra refreshment on the beer. Um, Eric Dupre, who who works at Van Hansbrook, mm-hmm. was was kind enough to kind of show me around some of the most important sites around Zonnebeke and Pastendala and in the Westhook. Um, you know, we're so surrounded here by the history of the war in West Flanders. You drive past the cemetery, you know, every village. Um, you know, there's constant reminders of sort of the incredible pain and suffering that happened. Sometimes it's easy to block it out. So when you really go on a tour to think about what happened and have someone explain it to you, you know, it, it, it's, it, it sends home just how tragic it is. Um, is there any... Um, was there any tension in the brewery about you know creating a commercial product that would kind of yeah inverted commas capitalize on you know the incredible pain and suffering of of you know what happened to those soldiers and what happened to the people in those villages you know in the first world war and you know if so how did those conversations kind of play out yeah because we we didn't launch the beer um for commercial reasons, we launched it because we had the request of these villages um, and also because we give a part of the margin back to them. Um, they appreciate it and it's not like some other uh, commercial hypes uh, that pass by. Uh, we really invested in the brand. Uh, we have also uh, uh, clothings. Uh, we have also external publicity material. Uh, it, uh, we did an investment in the brand, like like it is really our own brand, and um, because we have the collaboration with the Commonwealth uh, villages, um, we get a lot of respect. So the situation is that you then uh, put a margin of the the profit from the beer to the the what what's the organization then that kind of looks after the memorial parks in fact it's not an organization it's a it's a collaboration with the city of passchendaele uh with the mayor of passchendaele uh, the local government and we refund a part of the profit back to them so they get extra budget to um organize um, com, um organize the remembrance events yes 
Yeah, and, and is, is any of that going towards like the upkeep of the cemeteries or is that done by the Commonwealth uh, organisations? That's done by the Commonwealth, yeah. we don't... Uh, so you're uh, contributing more to yeah, commemorative events, um, memorial events run by the city of the Stads on the Yeah. Beke. yeah. Would you tell me what a margin or per percentage that you of the profit that you give to the the city? Um, I cannot give that because it's um, a deal between the village of Passchendaele. If the mayor of Passchendaele will tell it to you, it's okay for me, but it's not up to me to tell it. I contacted the municipality of Zonabeke and it turns out that there haven't been any donations from the brewery to the municipality of Zonabeke since 2018 when the formal World War I centenary commemorations finished. When I contacted him later, Frederic Boulet told me that the collaboration with Zonabeke ended as planned at the end of 2018. Various contacts at Stad Zonabeke were unable to furnish more details to me about the amounts donated during the centenary commemoration period. So, essentially today, all profits generated from sales of the Bastendale beers go to Castel Brauerei van Onsebroek. Eric Dupre leads me into a 70 hectare forest just outside Zonabeke. No, it's, it's okay there. You can, uh, they still ask you to stay on the, on the pads because there are still much ammunition in the wood. Like mines? It, yeah, yeah, could be. It's too dangerous to get in uh, on your own in the wood. So, okay, you're going to look after me though, right? Yeah. We're in Polygon Wood, the location of a scene of events during the Battle of Passendala, which resulted in thousands of casualties in just one week, between 26th of September and 3rd of October 1917. 20,000 Allied casualties and 13,000 German. Now the Boots new British cemetery is located in the middle of the forest, with the headstones of dead soldiers facing towards the headstone of their dead battalion commander, as if standing to attention for morning inspection. Today, it's a scene of tranquil beauty. The midday light is breaking through the 523 tall trees which surround the white headstones, colorful flowers peppered around the forest. But during the week of the Battle of Polygon Wood in 1917, it would have been a flat wasteland of mud shrapnel and corpses. The British were the first to take the lead during the Battle of Passendala, launching attacks which were stifled by strong German resistance and heavy rainfall. New troops from the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps, or ANZAC, were deployed to give the, get the offensive going again, but they too became exhausted and were eventually replaced by the Canadians who finally took Passendala. Now the Boots new British cemetery in the middle of Polygon Wood contains the remains of many of these Allied soldiers 
British, Anzac and Canadian, the majority of whom are unidentified. The graves are marked, A Soldier of the Great War, and written underneath, Known Unto God. Eric brings me to a small café on the western edge of Polygon Wood, Café Taverne de Dreve. A Dreve is a tree-lined avenue that passes through a forest. Inside, there are Australian flags hanging on the wall and commemorative posters of the World War I Anzac campaign in Gallipoli. The few older Flemish clientele there, outside and socially distancing, are all nursing a beer called Brothers Blonde. So we order one too, a Belgian blonde ale of 6.6% ABV and the cafe's most popular beer. The proceeds of sales of Brothers Blonde go to the building of the Brothers in Arms Memorial, located behind the cafe, which commemorates those families who lost multiple children during the First World War. The work on the memorial still has some way to go. I meet the cafe owner, Johan van der Walle, who took over the cafe from his father and who spends most of his free time on archaeological digs in the area. Van der Walle, he's a grey-haired man with a thick moustache, is known locally as The Mole and has published books on his finds. He even appeared on an episode of BBC's popular TV show Time Team as the local contact on a World War I dugout dig in 2008. Polygon Wood is a very famous what happened here. Even the first battle of Ypres started with the Black Watch here on the, just on the south corner of Polygon Wood, the other side. So the bar is on the west side. And uh, Polygon Wood has a, has a real history place. It's, an, it's a real monument of 70 hectares wood, but this is a main monument in the, in the, in the Ypres salient. And, uh, and also my bar, I have a certain name. It's named also the Underground War, the home of the Underground War, because I grew up here I took over from my dad. Next year is nearly 50 years that I own the bar. From my dad up to me, nearly 50, 25 years for me. But after all my studying of tunnels and dugouts all over the years, when a long time ago, I believe, and I and they name in the local area even the mole, Johan the Mole, because I was more underground and the tunnels to study them. The brothers' reference has its origins in an incident in 2006 when human remains were discovered next to the cafe during the laying of a new gas pipeline. Johan de Mole van de Walle was called to investigate. He confirmed from experience that the remains belonged to those of a World War I soldier and contacted the police and the mayor of Zonabeke to get a green light on an excavation. After clearing the grave, Van de Walle and his team noticed another body, and then another, and then two more. In total, five bodies were exhumed, all Australians, the Zonabeka Five. The last body, that of Private John Hunter, had not been thrown in the grave like the other four bodies, but rather had been carefully laid to rest. Van de Walle was moved by the discovery, telling me about the moment he uncovered John Hunter's head which was wrapped in his ground sheet, and about the connection he felt to the soldier who died next to his cafe at Polygon Wood 100 years ago. 
After research, including a trip by Van de Walla to Hunter's family in Brisbane, it was confirmed through DNA testing that John Hunter's brother Jim had buried him just outside Polygon Wood during the war before returning to Australia. Lyrics from the Dire Straits song, Brothers in Arms, are displayed on an unfinished plaque at the memorial site, together with an enlarged illustration which Van de Walla has created of Jim Hunter holding his brother John Hunter in his arms before laying him down to rest. But Brothers in Arms is to cover all the mystery between families and a link with mums and dads. This is the link, brothers and brothers, so many families. If you calculate the family, the number of families who lost one more, more than one son, it's 10,000, 10,000, and only allies, only allies, there is a list of nearly 17,000 families who lost more than one son. Then you have the Russians, you have the French, you have the Germans. We will never calculate, but what they found is a mystery, a soldier left behind, not a message in a bottle, a message on his brother. Um, you, you have a very nice cafe here. It's very, uh, I would say it's a traditional Westuk, Belgische cafe. Yeah. Um, your, you know, beer culture is obviously interesting to people that listen to this podcast mm. and it's very important in Belgium. Um, I'm here today with Eric from Van Hansenbrook Brewery who have a beer called Passendala. Mm. One thing I talk to him about a lot is uh, some people think that it's it's not a good idea to take a commercial gain from mm -hmm. the the kind of the, the tragedy that happened yes, in yeah, the war. Yeah. What are your feelings about that? Um, my feelings about that is we have to know also even in wartime they had, they had not much the, the the boys before went to the trenches so, so they had to cherish also to have a drink to join to smoke a cigarette to deal a cigarette even to deal a bottle of beer, even because even, you know there are so many different nationalities met them behind the lines before up to going up to the lines. There's nothing wrong with this, but I won't I won't see like uh, like um, let's say chocolates with a menin gate on. I won't see this. I will never put them in chocolate with a menin gate of of a survivor of a war and and eating them. But joining a beer, we remember still remembrance, but. Of course, it's up to anybody. You cannot drinking beers to, to make you to be drunk. It's a beer to join. It's a beer. If you go to the battlefields, try to join a beer with a name. It's a like Passchendaele beer, or we even we have a beer for our project because we're selling them a beer. We're selling bottles of beer to make the money to build a memorial. We don't have the money from the government. We won't have to selling beers. It's not a business. It's just. It's the way to, to, to pay your respect. So th this beer is called uh, Brothers, Brothers in Arms beer? Yeah, and the, the beer is Brothers beer. Where, where, a, where, where is that one brewed? Do you have this it? is a local brewery, yeah. And this beer is a local brewery. And this beer is a, so the local brewery. They give us the permission to have his beer. And we have the possibility to place our label on his beer. Which brewery is it? There's a local brewery. As, uh, as, um, do I have to tell the name? Well, I yeah. uh, the brewery this says, well, as a beer, this a few years ago, this was the best golden beer in Europe. It's a very nice beer. It's, it's, it's a secret behind. Is it from the Westhook? It's the Westhook. Like St. Bernardus or? No, it's not St. Bernardus. But I tell you, 
I keep this as a secret okay. because the Brothers in Arms Memorial is not a way to make an, an, a name of a brewery. It's only the name, in this case, it's a, the name, the Brothers Beer, as a beer to join, as a select beer. It's a very lovely, nice taste. I tell you, I'm a barkeeper and I taste this beer. This is the best beer that I have in my pub. The Brothers Beer, so we're selling the beer and some profits go to the charity. And do, does it do sell well in the cafe? This is my major, my best selling beer. It turns out the Brothers Blonde is actually an existing beer with another label, the Cue de Chachu Blonde, which is brewed at Brasserie du Boc in Pernod for the well known distributor of Anuxum. But Van der Waal's argument here about soldiers drinking beer is one I've heard from Eric too, that it's very natural to have a beer remembering the soldiers, because one of the few things they enjoyed doing when they were behind the lines was drinking beer with one another. At the end of tours, Eric usually brings visitors to Menin Gate, a memorial at the eastern exit of Ypres, dedicated to British and Commonwealth soldiers whose graves are unknown. At 8pm, every single night, since 1928, a brass band plays the last post-bugle call. Before the centenary celebrations began in 2014, only a few people showed up to watch. Now it is usually packed with hundreds of people every evening. Eric tells me that being at the Menin Gate is very emotional, but that when it's finished, you've got your tears and nothing else. He says that drinking beers brings people together. Part three, I once had a comrade. So when you were, when you were serving yourself, were you in a, ever in a position where there was like a, a line, a no man's land? Oh, we, we, what we did was uh, be infiltrating by night, jump out of airplanes and jumping in the enemy territory by foot. Um, all that. It's, it's like, you know, the, the, um, the band of brothers that I'm watching and they're 101st Airborne. Yeah. Their guys, easy company, jump out of planes and land, and then they regroup when they get down. Yeah, that's something that you were. Yeah, involved. what we were did in, uh, we jumping out of airplanes, high altitudes. Um, let's say about between 30 and 40 kilometers from our object, and then we get did infiltration by parachute in the air by night with, with a GPS, and then going as close as possible by the point we have to be. You know? And that's just because it's the, the quickest way to get in. You don't have to go over land. Yeah, because... Can I pass this one? No, no, I can't get in. I can't get in. I have to go from the other side. Yeah. This one is turned around. That's the problem. Uh, that's the parking place with the buses. Oh, yeah, okay. Now the... the and how many would jump at the same time? Ah, we'd be jumping on free fall out of an airplane. We can, our team, especially foster team, is 10 or 12 men. She's a small team. Yeah, always. I had the 101 Airborne. They have a fantastic history also in Normandy, those guys. 
can't be afraid of heights. No, that's for sure. And you have to be good with the parachutes. Yeah. Are you unafraid? No, I did have 985 jumps automatically, uh, free fall, and 120 automatically. So free fall is with the parachute. Always with the parachute, but automatically means you have a static line hangs on an airplane, and when you jump out, you should go and open. Oh, yeah. And free fall is jumping out of the airplane, looking at a high meter, and open your chute yourself. Yeah. So this is landmark. Yeah. Oh, still have time for this one. I have to take my, uh, my Ali. That is the most important, trusting each other. Otherwise you can't work. Yeah. Do you obviously have to train a lot together? Yeah. That's what we're doing. We have, um, I was team commander, so uh, when they're giving you, um, do, yeah. do you want to turn it off for a second? Yeah. Okay, so uh, they give me um, uh, an object. So Eric was pointing at the microphone and he was obviously not comfortable being on record talking about his experiences in the army, but over the course of our visits, I'm able to gradually build up a picture of what he's seen in his own service. One mission sticks out. At 10 p.m. on the 19th of May, 1978, Eric Dupre landed in a Lockheed C-130 Hercules military aircraft at Kolwezi Airport in Zaire, now the Democratic Republic of Congo, on a mission with the Belgian Kapara Commandos. The city of Kolwezi is an ore rich and strategically located and had been invaded by rebels from the Front for the National Liberation of Congo, FNLC, who wanted to take control of the country from Zairean President Mobutu. After conquering the city, these FNLC rebels had taken hundreds of Zairians and Europeans hostage. French paratroopers had already dropped into Kolwezi and were engaged in violent firefight with the rebels in a bid to secure the city. The morning after the Belgian drop, Eric's paracommando battalion travelled six kilometres by foot from the airport into Kolwezi, tasked with evacuating European citizens, mostly French and Belgian families, who had been working in the city's mines and hospitals. As Eric and his colleagues walked into a gutter to Kolwezi, lacking water, electricity and food, they were confronted with the remnants of a rebel massacre. Bodies of 60 Europeans and 100 Africans, men, women and children, lay scattered inside buildings and on the streets. In some cases, their bodies had been blown apart by grenades. In other cases, they had been riddled with machine gun bullets. 
Some had been dismembered. Those that had survived just wanted to get out. The Belgian paracommandos were well prepared and highly trained. Eric and his colleagues evacuated 2,200 Europeans and 3,000 Africans, many being flown within hours from Colwesi to the airports of Brussels and Paris. Initially ordered to leave after 72 hours, the Belgian paracommandos ended up staying over a month to supply the local population with food and to maintain order. For Eric, it was one incident in a military career which spanned 17 years. Eric Dupre has seen the horror and cruelty of war up close. He has studied military history, including that of World War I. And for years, he has paid his respects at the sites he is showing me today, where hundreds of thousands of soldiers died in the Battle of Basandala in 1917. Few others are as well placed to answer questions about the nuance of remembrance. So that was the um, issue from all the winning countries that they have to bring back their war symmetries to four. And at that moment on, when that was decided, Germans has to do it because they have lost the war. Um, then the Belgium government say we wants to say something also, three things that, that we want also that they're doing on our territory. The first thing you will see no soldiers alone, buried alone, with the name alone on the gravestone. Have to be one, two, thirteen, ten, not one alone. Okay. The what's, second. What's the reason for that? Yeah, it's, you're, you're not alone. It's, it was to humiliate the um, the Germans. Okay, not buried separately. You have to be buried in a group. Okay. So the second was uh, no flowers on the fields. You will see no flowers, you will see egg trees, oak trees. And then the second one was no stones like this, because that's the sign of victory. You have to be flat. That's why all the stones are flat in here. Okay? So, I see the stones are flat. Now, this stone's coming from Germany, from the Wiesel Valley. It's yellow stone, red stone from Germany. And all the, um, that wall you see, all the stones coming also out of Germany to bring the boys back home. We're now in Langemark, seven kilometers from Zonnebeke. It's the location of one of the four German cemeteries. The others are in Vladslow, Hochlede and Menen. There's a feeling in these German cemeteries which is unlike that of the others we visited. Large oak trees, the national tree of Germany, loom solemnly over the graves. This symmetry has the name Studentenfriedhof, Studentenschaft, Studentenfriedhof. Why? Because at the start of the war in 1914, the empire, the German empire, went to all the universities in Germany to say to the guys, you have to go to the front line and fight for Germany, fight for me. And a lot of uh, German students did that and came over here, and this is the result. Most so of them... These are all really young guys. 
yeah, three or four thousand young guys laying here. They came to the front line uh, with, um, how you say, with uh, not as training enough, and they came here and they find against them the hundred the, the British expeditionary forces who are well trained, and this is the result. Most of them died over here, and that's why the name. This is one of the sequence. Studentenfriedhof. This is markiert in Deutsch. Ihren Kameraden und Kommilitonen die Deutsche Studentenschaft. Uh, uw vrienden, your friends and uh, medestudenten van uh, de Deutsche Studentenbond. Who still giving student organizations. We're looking at the names of 3,000 German students who were taken from universities to fight for the German Empire and who now lie here in graves. Eric then takes me to a small patch of ground near the entrance of the cemetery, which measures no bigger than the small back garden of a terraced house. It's a mass grave known as the Comrades' Grave and contains the bodies of 25,000 soldiers, including that of German flying ace Werner Voss. A sculpture of four mourning figures stands guard over the fallen. You see here, look here. Lieutenant Werner Voss. You can see it's touched many times. Werner Voss, you know the name from Richthofen? It was the, the best German pilot they have. He has about 300 kills. So his airplane was uh, a Fokker and painted in yellow-red. And this was his second-in-command, Werner Voss. Died also here, is buried here in the middle. Um, what is special? Um, Von Richthofen was a very good pilot, and he was the one who found a very good strategy. He, he flies very, very high, and came out with the sun in his back, flying into the, the British airplanes. So, if you look up as a British pilot, you were with your eyes on the sun, and before you saw what was happening, you were killed. Okay? This was von Richthofen. And at that time, the, the pilots were the knights of the, of the air and of the war. And uh, you have to confirm. If you shut somebody down, they have to confirm on the other side. So you have to phone. Uh, did you lost a pilot that day at that area? They say, yes, you can claim the victory. No? And the British pilots, when they came back with, with three or four losses, they were saying that von Richthofen was a coward because he always attacked with the sun in his back. So von Richthofen, by Tam Tam, knows uh, came, uh, somebody came to say to Richthofen that the British say that he was a coward. And he said, phone the British and tell them tomorrow morning that they will see me. So he called his, his friend, second in command, Werner Voss, and he said, bring all my airplanes. In an hour, all my airplanes have to be here in the field. And then he said, no, you're painting my, my airplanes yellow, green, all colors you can think, mine as red as it can be, and yours in green. And in the morning, the soldiers in the trenches, because there was a big fight in, above Polygon Wood, uh, you saw the German, instead of camouflating, there was all different colors. And the soldiers on the floor say, it's like a flying circus. And that's the name Flying Circus come from. Okay. You feel something else, then you feel on a British cemetery. Yeah. The silence is... It's also very sad. Yes. Vier. Ich habe vergessen, zu machen, den Weg inside the V. Mm. 
So here, totally there are one, two, three, seven. Yeah, very difficult. And was there no argument from the Germans to sort of say, look, we lost, okay, that's fine. No. Can we not have them standing up? No, when you lost the war, lost the war all four you of... You're told. When you have in France, they're standing, crosses standing in Arras Vimy, German cemeteries, the crosses are like this. Here in Belgium, all four cemeteries have to lay down because you have lost the war. The emotion of the day begins to take its toll on me. During World War II, the ship in which my grandfather Jimmy Kearney served was hit by a German submarine. Most of the crew drowned. My grandfather survived only because he had learned to swim. Before that, my great-grandfather, Bernard Fitzpatrick, fought with an infantry regiment called the Connacht Rangers, serving between 1888 and 1918 in Malta, Cyprus, Egypt and the Second Boer War in South Africa. On today's tour with Eric Dupree, my thoughts are drawn to the young men who were taken from around the villages where I was born and grew up in Ireland, and who were slaughtered in their thousands at Messine Ridge, close by, and in July 1917, at Basendala. Their bodies lie here in Belgium, not far from the location of Castel Brauerei van Honsebroek. I try to reflect on the Pastendala beer. I visited the brewery and I've talked to Van Hunsebroek's staff. I've seen the story behind the brand and the reality behind that story. But I'm still confused about whether it's a cynical marketing ploy to capitalise on the high profile of the war centenary commemorations or whether it's a noble act of remembrance. On the one hand, the Van Hunsebroek team are shrewd commercial operators, right, with staff who have previously worked at breweries such as Anheuser-Busch InBev, where branding often comes before brewing and where margins are usually king. Part of the proceeds from the beer were donated to Stad Zonabeke between 2014 and 2018 to help fund commemorative events. That's noble and appropriate, of course, but today all profits from sales of Pastendala beers are retained by Van Hunsebroek. And even if Brauerei van Hunsebroek are the brewery more geographically entitled to brew a beer called Bostendala than any other, is the self-righteous language which is used on the bottle label, you know, with every sip we reflect on the horror of the Great War, you know, is that really necessary? But on the other hand, you know, this happened and it happened here. It happened no matter how much we would like that not to be the case. For people like Eric Dupré and Xavier van Honsebroek and for Frederick Boulay and Mark Schrauens and for Johan the Mole van de Walle and all the people who live here, surrounded by hundreds of thousands of gravestones in almost every village, it's part of the story of where they're from. Perhaps on a deeper psychological level, living with so many corpses and so much terror underneath your feet, it's appropriate to acknowledge the tragedy with a bespoke beer to ensure it is remembered and perhaps to process like a shared human grief. You know, I, I definitely encountered no ignorance or flippancy from those at Von Hunsebroek about how those who fought here suffered. 
you know, are the Passendala beers simply a fitting nod to the cultural history of this place? Over the years, Eric has taken German visitors to these cemeteries. Older Germans came on their own, or in very small groups, and observed the toll the war took on their grandfathers, largely in silence. Younger Germans now visit in larger numbers, eager to see where their great-grandfather is buried. Eric tells me that they usually sing, and that it's almost always that one particular song, Ich hat eine Kameraden known in English as The Good Comrade. In its recorded form, solemn brass band and male choir, it's stirring and emotional, the words telling the story of a soldier who sees his friend die horribly by his side as they run into battle. But sung unaccompanied by young Germans under the heavy silence and foreboding oak trees and dark headstones lying flat on the ground here across Langemark Cemetery, defeated and ashamed and mourning. I can only imagine how sad it must sound. You know, we're still doing it. We're still killing each other. We're still hurting each other. And I'm not naive. I know there are certain things you absolutely must fight for in life. But what I've learned is that there are plenty of unknown stories that need to be remembered so that we don't make the same mistakes of the past. No one wants to see another good comrade fall beside them. visit Flanders for their support in producing this podcast and thanks to you for listening my name is Brendan Kearney this has been the Belgian Smack Podcast until next time love what you do (laughs) 